Welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This new series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And what can we learn from the past to shape thinking? Joining me today is Dr. Ian Stewart, Executive Director of the CNS Washington DC office. For those of you unfamiliar with CNS, it is the largest research center in the US based on non-proliferation. Ian is really truly a specialist in export controls, sanctions and non-proliferation. Ian, delighted you are joining us. Welcome to this podcast. Good to be with you and glad to have the new series. So Ian, let's begin with some context. Prior to CNS, you led the excellent Project Alpha initiative at King's College London. You've been a scientific advisor for an EU project, and you've served with the British Ministry of Defence as a nuclear engineer working on nuclear deterrent and non-proliferation issues. Against this really quite significant backdrop, how do you assess today's global proliferation risks? What are your primary concerns? Is it about black market nuclear technology networks, state WMD programs, dirty bombs, or something totally different? A serious question to get us going. So you've listed some of the big national security challenges of states, and certainly they're all still there. Black market and nuclear networks we see, state WMD programs we see, and there are unfortunately risks of escalation and wars and so on. On the slightly fortunate side, we've not seen much in terms of WMD terrorism, dirty bombs and the like. But actually, as I sit here now in Washington, D.C., the thing that I would flag as the significant one for our community, the sanctions compliance community, actually relates to China. What I see in Washington is becoming strategic technology war, a strategic trade war, because what I see is that in Washington, I think they're going to be looking to use the non-proliferation tools, the sanctions tools to get to the China threat and the China problem in a way that we haven't seen before and something that's new. I think that's one of the top things that our community needs to be attentive to and focused on in the coming years. Ian, thank you, because that is very different to many sort of conversations of the past where it has been very much around dirty bombs and non-state actors and obviously state programs as well. You know, I just want to revisit something from the past. In the world of proliferation, there was the very famous AQCAN network Khan was a central figure in Pakistan's nuclear program. But the story is really about his onward sale of sensitive technologies to other parts of the world and other state programs. The network was unprecedented in terms of scope and scale of operations. Do you think the Khan network was unique? And is there still the possibility there's something like the Khan network in today's world? I love the history associated with illicit nuclear transfers. Khan himself was an interesting chap and the Khan network was very interesting. Khan was educated in Europe. He worked for one of the subcontractors of Urenco, the European enrichment outfit. And after India tested its nuclear bomb, he went back to Pakistan and offered to provide his services, which is you know, really fascinating. And he was able to take with him the designs, the list of suppliers to Urenco and so on to help Pakistan's program. And he became a very central figure in that program. And this actually leads to an interesting point, and I'll flag it now and I'll come back to it in a second. He became one of the leading government officials in Pakistan focused on developing nuclear weapons, in effect. And then it was from there that he coordinated a network to sell this technology on to other countries. So the reason I phrase it like that is 
he was a, a government official and there's a, a great controversy about if he was selling this technology on behalf of Pakistan or if he was doing it for personal interest. It's an interesting thing, partly because like, he got personally very wealthy out of this and he bought a hotel in Timbuktu, of all places, with the proceeds of his onward sale of this technology, which uh, mind boggles uh, slightly. But on the other hand, he was still a government official. So was he doing this on Pakistan's governmental behalf? That's relevant because I don't think the CAN network was unique. And actually, unfortunately, I, I do see networks like that continuing today. And I, I think about North Korea. You know, We might think that North Korea is a bit of a, a leap from the CAN network. But if you think about it, uh, North Korea is selling this technology to make money. It sold a complete reactor to Syria in the mid-2000s, and it's probably selling lots of other stuff. One of my concerns that we haven't seen evidence of yet is after the assassination in the Malaysian airport a couple of years ago of Kim Jong-un's brother, who else is North Korea selling VX to? Uh, and so on? Like, who are they selling these uh, nasty chemicals to? So there's definitely state networks continue. I also, you know, we track the illicit networks too and continue to see kind of large volumes of transactions, large networks of individuals who are frequently involved in proliferation. Often it's conventional arms rather than nuclear stuff, but actually there's some crossover between the networks. The CAN network is a particularly interesting um, example, but I, I don't think it's so unique actually. So just sort of thinking about this, we have engaged for many years on counter-proliferation. In fact, you know, we used to work together in the past. I recall you often being shut away in what I thought was a very dark, secretive room. I was allowed more out into public. How does the world of counter-proliferation look from a non-government point of view? I mean, has your perspective changed as you've moved out of government? I have to admit it was a, a bit of a shift for me to leave government and be able to talk to people and have a public profile and so on. And that did take a bit of getting used to. The global picture has changed in a few different ways. Some of the proliferation challenges we have now are a bit different from a decade ago when I was last in government. There's been a flurry of activity around Saudi Arabia um, in the last few weeks, for example, uh, which was something that wasn't particularly high or prominent on the, the radar a decade ago. But a lot of the issues remain the same. North Korea and Iran are kind of intractable problems that will be with us for years and probably decades into the future. But the picture has changed a bit. I feel outside of government, I actually have access to a better data picture than I ever had inside of government. Um, there's all sorts of new technologies and open source information that we just never were able to leverage even a decade ago. And that's significant because there's such an expectation around due diligence now in the private sector and so on. And that's partly driven by the fact that there's so much information and data out there now. You know, When I was in government, we could just never systematically leverage. But the other point I'd, I'd kind of highlight, I'd, I'd come back to the China point, actually. So I, I think the China challenge is going to define the next decade and on into this century. In my view, it was the challenge that we never really dealt with a decade ago, where I thought we should be doing more on the kind of China front. As I say, the sense I have is that the whole sanctions community and sanctions compliance community will kind of have to be working on this uh, China challenge driven by uh, some of the policies I see coming out of the US. And I think that's quite new and um, uh, something that didn't quite exist a decade ago. I mean, maybe this follows on, but, you know, in today's world then of global proliferation security concerns, you know, these mostly driven by state actors versus non-state actors, what keeps you most awake at night? 
God, Justine, it's quite a bleak picture if put it like that. We can try and be more positive. <laughs> you know, it is quite a bleak picture. If we work through the issues, there is a risk of state conflict, um, accidental escalation to war, and even kind of state-on-state and, and nuclear war. I was making a little list of the different potential conflict paths that I see, and uh, unfortunately, there are quite a lot of them. The reason I work on these issues, and I hope that the reason that many of us work on these issues is that we hope we can find a a path to navigate these difficult cases so that those kind of worst scenarios don't come to pass. It's certainly the case that there are difficult and big risks out there. The question of state versus non-state, I'm actually not so sure about. What I really see is non-state actors. I don't really draw the distinction in most of this work. What we see is non-state actors being used, leveraged, working on behalf of state actors. I don't see huge WMD terrorism risks at present. I mean, it's always there, but um, we've not seen them come to pass. My primary thing is the risk of state actors and all of the state actors I can think about leverage non-state actors in some way in support of their programs. That's kind of an important point to keep in mind on this one, I guess. Yes, it is really an important point indeed. And, you know, if we look to the proliferation concern covers many aspects, you know, whether it's nuclear, whether it's missile, whether it's export control, sensitive technologies. But, you know, one of the questions people often used to ask me when they knew I had any engagement with counterproliferation is they used to say, well, how hard is it to build a nuclear bomb? And I never really knew quite how to respond. I mean, you are the scientists here. Any views that you would quite like to offer on this? It's an interesting thing because nuclear technology is World War II technology. It's kind of old technology in some ways. It's not easy to build a nuclear weapon. The science is complex, although solvable. And I'd sort of say that any state could do it with a concerted effort. The science isn't easy and, and you know, like physically making sure that it goes bang as, as needed is kind of a challenge. But the hard part is really getting everything that's needed. If you think back to like the Manhattan Project and, you know, any nuclear weapons program, it's not just about even the uranium and plutonium. It's a whole supply chain of stuff, a mass industrial endeavor sort of requires not quite all of the resources of the state, but significant investment. The hard part in my mind isn't so much the nuclear science, it's being able to put together all of the logistics that are required for such a huge enterprise, probably with adverse actors uh, like the US and the UK trying to stop you, to interrupt your efforts to buy things and so on. So from that perspective, it is a hard challenge to build and deploy a, a nuclear weapons system, I think, even though the technology is now more than 75 years old. So in 2018, we both contributed to a book on preventing the black market trade in nuclear technology. I was covering proliferation financing, and I recall you wrote about out-of-the-box initiatives. You've also written about how governments do not really appear to put an awful lot of emphasis on proliferation financing when compared to money laundering or terrorist financing. Thinking about this, what out-of-the-box proliferation financing initiatives would you like to see as we move forwards? It's an interesting question, you know, why is proliferation financing kind of the least talked about of the three terrorist financing and money laundering? Why doesn't it get as much attention? So in terms of -of out-of-the-box ideas, I'm not sure I'd go in that direction on this one, actually. So I sort of come back to thinking that a lot of the illicit trafficking, illicit trade, illicit networks, we see the sanctions evasion practices and so on. 
actually are the result of gaps in governance and kind of poorly designed governance systems. So to give you a, a specific example of that, the sanctions on North Korea sort of require you to know who owns and controls vessels. You have to know if they're North Korean vessels or not. But the whole maritime sector is geared partly around hiding the ultimate beneficial owner, but for entirely different reasons, for reasons of liability in case you have an accident. You know, you need to have the kind of liability shield so you hide the ultimate beneficial owner. So that's an example of where the governance rules that exist in that sector just aren't compatible, don't quite work with with sanctions. And that's sort of true in relation to a whole number of proliferation finance topics, actually. What I would like to see us focus more on and solve is some of those kind of underlying governance and structural issues um, that then kind of lead on to enabling the proliferation finance type activities. And then in, in terms of why proliferation finance doesn't get more attention, I mean, I think it is a difficult issue, actually. For a start, there's a definitional problem around proliferation finance. I mean, it can mean everything from nuclear widgets through to any transaction involving North Korea. Both can be classed as proliferation finance. And those are two very different types of things with different types of control system you'd put in place to counter it. But also, I think um, all states have exposure to proliferation finance cases. I know this from the work that I do around the world. But terrorist financing and money laundering seem like much more real, tangible, and local threats to them, I think. Proliferation finance, which in the mind of most states, um, affects countries that are far away. Um, so that's kind of a real challenge that I see in this area. How do you make it tangible for the state? How do you kind of make the state think about it as a national security threat on the same level as some of these other threats. So that kind of requires storytelling, and it requires us to actually work with specific states, and that's fine. It's just going to take us quite a long time. So in both in terms of how we get individual states to engage with this issue, and also some of those governance issues I just talked about, those are hard and kind of quite long-term challenges to work through. But I think it's really important that we kind of invest our time and resources and effort on doing so, because it's only with that that we can improve the picture in the future. This is a very secretive world and is a very complex world indeed, driven by both state and state actors, state and non-state actors, I should say. Very quickly, are there any standout cases that have really caught your attention over the years? So the one that comes most to mind, there's a chap called uh, Shihai Cheng. The case itself was interesting and notable. He was the sales representative of this company, MKS Instruments in China. He worked with others to kind of falsify paperwork so that pressure transducers, which are a very sensitive type of commodity with direct uses in nuclear programs, could be diverted to Iran. So the case was significant. But this chap, Shihai Chen, he threw it at one point, going somewhere, and I, I can't quite remember where he was going, but he was arrested um, at the border. I think he was going to a football match, or maybe that was the other chap that worked for MKS Instruments who was also arrested. So he was on his way to a football match or whatever it was, and he was arrested at Heathrow Airport. And he was arrested on the request of the US. So there was an extradition hearing and and so on. And I was able to go along to the extradition hearing and kind of sit uh, quietly in the back and and listen to this. And it was interesting because I I remember looking at the the chap who was kind of quite shabbily dressed and... um, you know, I just had a great deal of sympathy for him, actually. So he was involved in like a, a very serious case, and, and he was doing bad things for sure. But I, I'm not sure he kind of got the gravity of the case that he was involved with. 
you know, looking back on it, he was this kind of slightly humble, probably poor chap from China who's suddenly involved in this massive network with the US government going after him and so on. So sure, you know, I, I think it was a mistake for him to be involved in such a network, but I had some sympathy for him. The extradition hearing was interesting too, actually, because the barrister acting on behalf of the Crown got a point of law wrong, and he almost didn't get extradited to the US. And the point of law was to say, you have to show double criminality in these cases, so it has to be a crime in the UK and in the US. It was put forward that the UK didn't have export controls before 2009, which of course it did. The whole case almost collapsed because the barrister acting on behalf of the Crown didn't know that, which isn't actually surprising, but it's just one of those kind of strange feats. The other one that comes to mind, and, and this is entirely fictitious, but um, uh, Nicolas Cage in Lord of War, probably the only Nicolas Cage film that I'd kind of uh, advocate for. But there's a great scene where they're, um, they have rotten potatoes in a container on a vessel, and he explains that the reason they've got rotten potatoes is because customs officials will never dig through the smelly potatoes to see if there's contraband uh, hidden behind them, which I buy into, actually. I like that. Okay, to finish off, CNS does strive to combat the spread of WMD, and they do that by training the next generation of non-proliferation specialists. I mean, where do these specialists come from? I mean, in my own case, I became you know, involved in counter-proliferation through absolute accident. So as a very quick parting thought, for those interested in becoming engaged, preventing the spread of weapons proliferation, what advice would you give them? So I think most people have stumbled into this field, actually, rather than it being a systematic career path. What I'd say is at CNS or the Middle Brain Institute of International Studies, there are dedicated programs, master's level programs on these topics. And actually, there is an education path into this space, you know, so non-proliferation, terrorism, illicit finance. There are master's programs into that. Actually, the thing that I'd highlight, though, is, um, you know, the excellent work that that your organization does, uh, Justine. It's not just about the education, but also the kind of the skills and the competencies that you get through training rather than education a lot of time. And actually, I think kind of both lead into careers in this area. So there is now an, an education path into this space, which I don't think existed before. And a lot of kind of US government people working on these issues pass through those programs and so on. But actually, it's the vocational training that's the really important thing in my mind. So I kind of commend the good work that you do. So that's a really nice way to finish this. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, insights. I think we're all really appreciated. You are now allowed out to have a public profile out of that dark, secretive room I always remember you being in. So for those listening, please do sign up as we continue our journey around the world to hear all the stories behind sanctions. Thank you. I'm Justine Walker with ACAM. Thank you, Ian Stewart.